podcast episode from Oncology Data Advisor was recorded live at the 2023 American Society of Hematology annual meeting in San Diego. Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit oncdata.com, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and follow us on social media for more exclusive content and interviews from the meeting. Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. Today we're here live at the ASH annual meeting and I'm joined by Dr. Alex Boucher. Thanks so much for coming by today. Thank you for inviting me. To start off, I'd like to introduce yourself and share what your work focuses on. Sure. So I'm I'm a pediatric and adult hematologist or classical hematologist at the University of Minnesota, having been there for a few years. I, I tend to lead our sickle cell program and a lot of my uh, research is around health equity and making sure not just for sickle cell disease, but even more broadly within the medical community. Awesome. Um, so today we're talking about um, your research here, or racial discrepancies in the use of stigmatizing language in hematology, oncology, electronic medical records. Um, so for background, would you like to tell us a little bit about what stigmatizing language is um, the and the role that it can play in perpetuating biases? Yeah, so part of this idea generated certainly from my patients with sickle cell disease who are predominantly underrepresented minorities in the U.S. that's uh, maybe black, but regardless, they often have socio lower socioeconomic status. And so when we took this on, this was certainly driven by personal experience of seeing words in the medical record, maybe this is belligerent or hostile or even non-compliant, and recognizing that those mean something over and above medical, they're not objectively medical, but they do potentially trigger a reader of, say, that document, or perhaps a listener, if you're interacting vocally, starts to paint a picture and perhaps trigger some implicit biases. And so with that, and having been triggered myself in many ways, sometimes with the medical documentation, which unfortunately is how most communication happens in the medical world, uh, we undertook this project to sort of see, in, in this case, in this abstract, just within the hematology oncology uh, field in the adult side, but actually it's part of a much larger project across our healthcare system to do it regardless of age in that inpatient and, and emergency department setting to figure out are there certain words that are really personal characterizations of patients but have generally agreed upon positive or negative biases so that um, as really just to figure out what is our current baseline before we could even intervene we need to know where we were starting from. What are some of the ways that this um, stigmatizing language could affect patient care? Sure. If somebody says a patient is non-compliant, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but oftentimes that will mean that somebody, either that person who says it or, or potentially someone else down the line, may not offer the same kinds of treatments. Mm -hmm. um, another one may be if somebody says a patient is hostile and you're reading that before you go into the, the room, you're going to potentially very likely be a little bit more defensive when you mm -hmm. walk into that room. You're not going to probably hear the whole story. Right. You're, you're not going to potentially even offer all the things you might versus somebody who's polite right. or, or respectful. Those mean things to different people and they they change the nonverbal interactions with people. And so if we're thinking about it, whether it's hematology or oncology, and, and again, thinking about non-compliant, you may not offer that person, say, a bone marrow transplant if that person has right. not, quote, not been compliant with their medications, even though there's a very likely a good reason that, mm -hmm. that they haven't been able to follow through. Maybe it's it's transportation or financial difficulties. But in non-compliant, the default tends to be you didn't follow the rules that I set out. Why did you decide to focus on the electronic medical record um, to investigate, investigate stigmatizing language? 
to be honest, because that's our unfortunately our most common <laughs> source of communication. It's it, it is increasingly infrequent, but the reality that we get too busy to pick up the phone and call somebody, or for communicating messages, say across to another system. Say we got a referral in from a different patient, or, or from a different center, or say somebody is coming to us um, as a second opinion. We we don't know what the the other doctors, their time commitments are, or maybe they're in clinic, so we send a note and we fax the note. Or if we're in the, in the case of our study, we're in the inpatient setting, we type in this note because we've got to write it or because there's got to be some communication, but we don't know who the audience is going to be. And so the reality is these things, these implicit biases that we may have ourselves get put into text. Those texts that we put in are, I sometimes call them, it gets put in essentially digital cement. It, in some ways it's like social media. It doesn't disappear. Um, you can even sometimes try to delete it and it just flags it as deleted, but it's actually still there at least on the provider side of the medical record. And so these things get, the risk is getting perpetuated, particularly in, in relation to individual characterizations of patients. Right. Um, so how did you, you and your team go about designing the study? Yeah, the Impetus, again, was a patient experience that I had where I felt like the, the text that was written about one of my patients from the emergency department was very stigmatizing and that the, the likelihood was that the next ED provider would read that note and not my own or somebody else's because they were presumably and, and, and objectively trying to figure out, does this match the last admission? But when the, when the last few key words are, you know, say problem patient or, or behavioral problem, that's going to that's going to flag them as something different, and so. But I need to figure out because my patient population is heavily underrepresented minorities. Was this my experience, or was this a broader issue? And so, we pulled a big data set. We took two and a half years of data from five or five different hospitals within our healthcare system: a couple suburban, one pediatric, and two uh, urban centers, including our ac core academic center. And we looked at basically notes across the board. Any person who wrote it, whether they were spiritual health or a pharmacy student or a nurse or a, a physician, and we had picked out keywords that in many ways they, there's not a, some people could pick any some sense of words, but these were words that we felt like we had seen regularly enough that also in our minds mentally triggered a picture of who that person was before, before we even walked in. Essentially they prejudiced us one way or the other. We, we did it make a uh, a, co a conscious effort to look at positive terms as well. That's great. Um, so what were the results that you found in the study? Yeah, so the results, particularly for this abstract, we had about a thousand patients. And I should say, when we found these language, we used natural language processing software, so essentially AI, to find these words. And then we spent a year or more trying to uh, confirm those use in the right way and in the sense, say, compliant. We wanted to make sure that it wasn't complaint misspelled or not space compliant was listed as non-compliant instead of compliant. So that was that's that sort of background. We can't just assume that the AI is telling us um, that it, it it's accurate. We had to we had to, we found those things as we went. Um, but what we found in, in these data, and to be honest, this is a part of a much larger data set that we're hopefully will be published soon. Um, um, of about 12,000 encounters and 9,000 patients were that the negative terms were more likely in, in our analyses where we had the power to do uh, racial groups was white and black, although we looked at, we looked even out to other ethnicities and, and or race, race ethnicities and, and grouping, uh, 
um, you know, sort of multiracial groups, but when it came down to it, we could analyze white black. That those ne a couple of those negative terms really stuck out, and when they did stuck out, that odds ratio was more likely that that negative term was in someone who self-reports as black in our demographics. And on the flip side, things like polite or or positive terms in general were more likely to be in that white individual in somebody who self-reports as white. And so, in some ways, those racial tendencies and stereotypes that are out in the community are being perpetuated. In some ways, not surprisingly, if we think about this is the way we communicate in our digital communication. Right. Um, were any results, um, did any stand out to you as particularly striking? Not striking, but alarming. I, I think, in other words, I don't think we were surprised by any of these data. I've struggled with this in my clinical care, and, and I, I'm the first to admit, my own documents were in this EMR too. So this is not standing on the outside of the house throwing stones. This is somebody who lives this and, and recognizes that I've been part of the problem, but I want to address it. Um, I think the things like, we, and, and while we didn't see it in this abstract, we did see some in the, the larger document about curse words showing up. There are a lot of curse words actually in there that were um, being quoted as uh, by patients, and they, and they weren't threats to anybody. We excluded those, but these were ones where you could have said patient cursed at me, but instead you somebody decided to put in the actual text for whatever reason. But I think, again, it triggers you in a different way when you read that text. Um, the fact that all of, the, the fact that it was so skewed that every negative result, every negative term that had a significant odds ratio was in a black individual and every positive was in a white, I think that's the, the biggest takeaway versus any one word. Again, there are other words that could certainly be used here. Sometimes non-adherent becomes the new non-compliant, and I don't like that term either. But the reality is this is such a heavy skew, and in some ways, while we don't have the, the self-reports of whoever wrote the note, of course that would be a whole different, and we wouldn't have those data, it's so subversive or so pervasive that we're seeing it in our hemoc patients, but we're also seeing it, that's just a, a microcosm of our, of our larger medical community. And we also say, this is not just a Minnesota issue. Now, maybe we're one of the first to look at it, but I can pretty much guarantee you that we are not the only one who's had this problem. Uh, we may have been one of the few to look at it. Definitely. Um, so in light of these results that you found, um, what changes do you recommend for um, improving awareness of stigmatizing language and documentation and starting to mitigate its use a little more? Yeah, I think one of the things that we're hoping to do is get people more aware, although I'm also very cognizant that um, it's not enough. In other words, that making big statements about these things is fine in a very short term, but it's unlikely to stick. Um, and even as we look at our larger data set, when, when George Floyd was murdered, uh, um, kind of midway through our data set, and that was just a few miles from our hospitals, um, nothing, to be honest, really changed over time in that post-George Floyd versus pre-George Floyd event, which tells me that I think we have a mission and an admirable mission to improve our, our health equity, but it, it wasn't being passed down, at least in this man manifestation, to the way we communicate. So what I'd like to figure out is ways that we can nudge people to, if you're, and it, and it may not be to totally wash away all these terms. Maybe there's an important use for these terms, but to be more thoughtful about when they use them. If you're going to use the term non-compliant or compliant, then explain what you mean by that if you write that, because 
then you take away the reader's implicit bias of what that means. You can, you've put out what this means to you, and then I, as the reader now, can interpret that, do I agree or disagree? But now I've gotten more clarity. If non-compliant because they didn't have transportation to get to the pharmacy, I wouldn't call that non-compliant, actually. I would say now we have a social issue we need to address, and we can get this patient back on track. So that's one way to do it. And I just think it's, it's, a, it's a piece of a larger picture of health equity. Uh, and given that this, is, this communication modality is not going anywhere, but also our patients can see it, because it is an era of open medical records, they can't respond to it as directly as, as others, but they can see it. I think that awareness and vigilance and kind of getting back to the, the role of the medical record is, is, is core medical information. And that's it. I mean, that's what it was back in the paper era when nobody had time to type everything and we didn't have copy forward. You just wrote the core things. That had issues too, but it didn't, I would argue in some ways, it didn't perpetuate these characterization stereotypes because nobody had the time to type them out or write them out. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, so do you have any future research plan in this area? We do. We're trying to figure out now that we've done our full data set and submitted it and um, we are trying to figure out now how to nudge people in a different direction. In other words, there's a small but increasing number of uh, journal articles out there saying that this is an issue in various ways, uh, shapes, and forms. But there's very little, if any, data on how do you use that information to change outcomes. Even in ours, we make it very clear. We, don't, we're not, we can't even address outcomes here because it's just too pervasive. Right? There's not one measurement that we could do other than the use of the words. But I would love to figure out ways that we can, um, again, I like the word nudge, I like the behavioral economics theories of getting people to think differently and, and recognize their own biases, to, um, but still giving them the freedom to, to write what they feel is appropriate. You know, If you're going to use the compliant, either you have to define it or get rid of it. Right. Either way is probably better than just putting compliant, patient is not compliant, period, or compliant. And, and so that's one way, but we, we're really trying to figure out what are those potentially meaningful clinical outcomes, at least one piece of that, because this is a big, um, uh, to, to kind of figure that out, whether it's in the HEMOC world, which is certainly where I live my time, but also just in the general hospital uh, sphere. Great. Um, do you have any additional messages or parting words um, regarding you know, reducing the use of stigmatizing language in the hopes of providing more equitable care? Yeah, I think, it's, I, th I think it's easy for it to be thought about in my world of sickle cell disease. That's kind of the low-hanging fruit. That's, people say it's obvious, although we still see it. I also think people are probably nowadays, I hope, are a little more uh, apt to kind of check themselves and not use it in those languages. But I think in our broader oncology world, I don't know that that's true. And so I think what I encourage folks when we're talking about health equity is that this is everywhere. This is out in, in um, high socioeconomic communities. This is in low because this is, cult you know, this is our, our outside culture that seeps into medical culture. We don't live somehow differently or s totally separately within one or the other. We leave the hospital. We go into our communities. We read the news, which is not medical. And so... That idea that if we can find ways to change this, and this just being one little piece of a big puzzle, I'm of the mind that we can be iterative. We can think, build upon that and go to the next step. There's no golden ticket here. There's no easy fix. But the more we can kind of 
actually take those second thoughts, think a little more deeply about what we're writing, and not just chalk it up to sickle cell disease and you know an issue in sickle cell disease. I think we as a hemoc community can become just you know one step better, and and you know in, in terms of health equity. Absolutely, this is uh, such a such an important issue. Um, so thank you so much, not only for you know stopping by to talk about this today, but for you know embarking in this work and helping to uh, improve patient care. So I really appreciate it. I'm glad we're we're trying to spread the word, and and I, I'm glad that you were able to find the abstract and and reach out. Definitely. Well, thank you very much again. It was wonderful to talk with you today. Thank you so much.